Well, thank you, praise team, for reminding us of the faithfulness of God in Psalm there. And thank you, Alex, for leading us in our praise time again while Ashley is out of town. We're grateful for you stepping in. The Lord has really blessed us with so much musical talent and gifting in this congregation. We're grateful for all of you who use it to lead us in praise before the Lord. He is so amazing, and we get to the privilege of singing his praise week by week. I'm grateful for all of you. I want you to find Ephesians chapter 5 this morning as we continue our journey through Paul's letter to the people in Ephesus and to us as well. If there's a recurring theme of everything we've seen in Ephesians, it's been that true belief in Christ changes everything of our lives. We've seen how true belief in Christ changes how we handle trying situations. Instead of getting angry, we can be patient and forgiving. We've seen how true belief in Christ changes how we view work, that we don't need to steal, but rather we work hard to earn so we can be generous to others. We even saw last week how true belief in Christ changes how we view sex and sexuality, taking us from being immoral and selfish to serving our spouse in the context of marriage. As we continue today, we're going to see how believing in Christ changes us and how it changes our words, how it changes our speech. Now, if you've been around Gateway for a while, you may be thinking, wait, that, that sounds redundant. I think we've heard that before, and if you're thinking that, good memory, because in fact you have. Paul's bringing back up today a theme that we've seen over and over. In fact, five times in Ephesians chapter 4, we saw Paul tackle the issue of speech. We saw back in chapter 4, verse 15, that we're called to lovingly speak the gospel to one another. We saw in chapter 4, verse 25, that we're to put off falsehood in our speech and put on truth-telling in all things. We spent a week looking at Ephesians 4.26, how we put off outbursts and yelling and clamor, and we put on patience with other people. We've seen in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 29, that we put off decaying speech. We put on speech that gives grace. Finally, we saw towards the end of Ephesians chapter 4, verse 32, that we put off bitterness. We put on forgiveness. So already in just Ephesians chapter 4, there were five different verses that dealt with speech. And here we are as we're tackling chapter 5. We come to chapter 5, verse 4. We come to speech again. Is there anything else that Paul can really say about speech after dealing with the gospel and truth and outburst and grace and decay and bitterness and forgiveness? Well, yes, there's still more to be said on speech. So why would Paul keep talking about speech more than any other command in Ephesians or commands about our mouth? Why is he dealing with this over and over again? And why is it so important for us to talk about our speech once again? Before we get into Ephesians 5 today, I want to give you four reasons, I believe, why Paul tackles speech more than any other issue. And four reasons I believe it's so important for you and I as followers of Christ to look very closely at our speech. Number one, why it's important for Paul to address and for us to address it, our speech shows what's in our hearts. Our speech shows what's in our hearts. As you see on the screen, Luke chapter 6, verse 43 through verse 45. For no good tree bears bad fruit, nor again does a bad tree bear good fruit. Carry on. For each tree is known by its own fruit. For figs are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor are grapes picked from a bramble brush. In verse 45, the good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good, and the evil person out of his evil treasure produces evil. For out of the abundance of the heart, his mouth speaks. Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Friends, it's really common to say, well, I didn't mean to say that. Well, that's just not true. We meant to say it. We may regret saying it, but we meant to say it because if it comes out of our mouth, it doesn't come from nowhere. It comes from our heart. And it's really hard to look into our heart, our soul, and find out really what's going on in there. But if we want to know what's happening in our heart and our soul, we can look at our words because our words reflect what's happening in our heart. God's concerned about our heart, and so we can look at our words to see that. So we talk about speech over and over because it shows what's in the depths of our heart. Number two, why it's important to talk about speech again, our speech has the potential for much destruction. Our speech has the potential for much 
destruction. I want you to look at James chapter 3. I want us to read verses 5 through 10. So also the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. And the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, and set on fire by hell. For every kind of beast and bird, of reptile and sea creature can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind. But no human being can tame the tongue as a restless evil full of deadly poison. With it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not to be so. Paul talks about speech more than any other command in this latter part of Ephesians because it has the potential for so much destruction. Friends, we all know marriages. We all know parent-child relationships. We all see churches. We all see co-worker relationships, friend relationships that have just been wrecked. Not because of violent actions, but because of words. Because the speech was like James described, a fire that set things ablaze and ruined a relationship. And perhaps many of you today are feeling the pain of broken relationships because of words. Words others have said to you or even your own words that have hurt others. So Paul tackles speech over and over because it shows what's in our heart has the potential for much destruction. But the flip side, at number three, it has the potential for so much good. Our speech has the potential for so much good. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 29. We saw this back just a, back in the fall. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. Because that's stunning. Our speech not only has the potential for destruction, but it has the potential to give grace to anyone we meet. Our speech can be used by God to build people up, to unify people who are distant from each other, to encourage people, to heal broken relationships, to grow believers, to point non-believers to the hope of Christ. Our speech has the potential to give the grace of God to people in need of it. But the last reason why I believe Paul tackles speech over and over again is good for us to as well. Number four, we will answer to God for every word we have said. We will answer to God for every word we have said. Romans chapter 14, verse 12. So then each of us will give an account of himself to God. Not for salvation. If we are in Christ, our salvation is secure. But we will still stand before God and we will give an answer to him for what we've done. That means we will have to give an answer for all the words we've spoken. Words that give grace and words that have torn down. And though it does not affect salvation, friends, Scripture tells us it affects rewards in heaven. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10 tells us this. For we must all appear, now this is written to believers, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. Again, not judgment for salvation, this is judgment of works. So that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Friends, we will have to answer to the Lord one day, a holy Lord, our Creator, for all the words we've said that's done destruction. But we also, there will be rewards for in eternity for our words that have given grace. So why does Paul talk about speech over and over and over and over again? Because it shows our hearts. It has a potential for much harm. It has a potential to do much good. And we'll have to give an answer to the Lord for that. Therefore, we come to a repeated idea, but a different emphasis today in our speech in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 4. As we look at this, realize what he's saying flows out of what we saw last week. After showing us the importance of purity in how we view sex and sexuality, he's now going to flow into purity in our speech, and this all goes together. As we read Ephesians chapter 5, verse 4 this morning, I want you to look for two things. Number one, what is our standard of speech? 
We live in a day and age where there's a lot of compromise about speech, and I think we kind of have this mindset, as long as I don't talk like an R-rated movie, I'm okay. But what is God's standard for our speech? But second of all, when we find impure speech in our lives, what do we do? What is the antidote? What is the solution God calls us to when we see impurity in our speech? So what's God's standard? And when we find that we're falling short, what are we to do? So let's come to Ephesians chapter 5, verse 4. Can I ask you to stand, please, in honor of the reading of the Word of God as we come to our verse for this morning? Ephesians chapter 5, verse 4. I'm reading out of the English Standard Version. Whether there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place, but instead, let there be thanksgiving. Would you pray with me? Father God, I thank you for your word. I'm thankful that you love us so much. You show us what your plan for our lives are. And Lord, I pray this morning as we tackle a topic that we have seen over and over and over, I pray that you would give us fresh eyes to understand the importance of our speech and what it shows about our hearts and Lord, how you want us to steward our speech for your purposes. So give much grace this day, Lord, as we tackle your word and look at the depths of this one verse of your word. I pray that it would come alive to us and it would encourage us and challenge us and convict us where we need convicting, that we might be built up to be who you want us to be. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. One thing I want you to see from our verse this morning is this idea. God gives grace to rid impurity from our speech through thankfulness. God gives grace. This is not a call to self-help. This is not a call to white-knuckle determination. God gives us grace. God doesn't give us what we need to be who he's called us to be. And that's particularly in terms of our speech, to rid impurity from our speech. And he's going to call us to do that through not what we would expect, but through thankfulness. We'll talk more about that. God gives grace to us to rid impurity from our speech through thankfulness. So let's start with this idea that God gives us grace for that. As we've seen over and over in Ephesians, this is not what I keep calling white-knuckle determination. If you come away from Ephesians going, I need to try harder, we're missing the point of it. Because this is not a call to try harder. This is a call to rely on God's strength to let the one who dwells within us to change us. You may be thinking, I didn't see the word grace in verse 4. Well, you didn't see it, but the idea is there. Look back at verse 4 here. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place. Now let's hone in on that phrase, out of place. What does that mean? To be out of place means not fitting. It doesn't fit the occasion. If I wore a suit to a football game, that would be out of place. Likewise, if I wear gym clothes to a wedding, that is out of place. It doesn't fit the context, okay? There's something that is out of place in the life of a believer, but particularly it's something that's out of place with God's grace. It's something that's inconsistent with a life that's full of the grace of God. It's something that's inconsistent with a life that's being transformed by the grace of God. All of Ephesians chapters 1 through 3 was showing us God's grace, what God had done for us. And all of Ephesians chapters 4 through 6 are showing us how that grace changes us. So when we see that something is inconsistent, it's inconsistent with a life that's being transformed by the grace of God. When we see this, what this out of place should remind us of is that God, when he looks at us, does not see you or I as sinners. If we are in Christ, if we have believed, when he looks at us, he sees the righteousness of Christ. That's an incredible thought that for a true follower of Christ, not only are our sins forgiven because of what Jesus did dying for us, but all of Christ's righteousness is imputed, is given to us, is credited to us. And so when God looks at us, he doesn't see me as one with impure speech. He doesn't see me as one struggling with anger. He doesn't see me as one with an impure thought. He sees Christ. And when the Father looks upon any of his children, he sees Christ. He sees us covered with Christ's righteousness. And because of that, he loves us so much that he says, not only do I see you, like I see Christ. He says, now I'm going to give you strength to more and more imitate Christ. That was what Ephesians chapter 5 verse 1 was all about. Be imitators of 
God. So we see this phrase, out of place. Realize that means that God is going to give us grace to imitate more and more of Him, to more and more in our daily life live out who He already sees us to be. This is not us trying to get our life in order so that God will accept us. This is because God already accepts us, because He already sees us as forgiven, because He already sees us covered with Christ's righteousness. He's now saying, now I'm going to give you strength to practically live out what I already see you to be. As he does that, he convicts us. He shows us things in our life that are inconsistent, that are out of place with, what, with how he sees us. And as he convicts us, he then provides us strength to change. Particularly here in chapter 5, verse 4, there are some things that are inconsistent with a life full of the grace of God. And he says, I will give you strength to get rid of these from your life. To, In the language of chapter 4, to put them off, to rid them from your life. What are they? He gives us three types of speech that need to be removed from our life that is inconsistent with a life full of the grace of God and the power of of God. Look back at verse 4. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking. Three things we see here. First of all, we're to put off all speech that is filthy, that is filthiness. The Greek word here for filthiness is the same word that we translate shameful in a lot of the rest of the New Testament. We're to put off all shameful speech. What is in view in this? If you look at how that word was used and understood at the time, it would include kind of two broad categories. It would include profanity and include any type of coarse sexual references. So first of all, profanity. What would that include? Well, let's go back to what we saw in October, but let me refresh our memories. What we talked about, profanity includes things like taking the name of the Lord in vain. In vain means worthless. Profanity of taking the the Lord's name in vain is when we're frustrated or angry, we throw out casually words like God and Jesus and Christ. It's using God's name in a worthless way. What's so bad about that? Well, to remind us from October, we're taking a name that's supposed to be worthy of worship and we're using it to express surprise or anger or frustration. To do that takes the most holy name in the world and it makes it filthy, makes it dirty because we're lowering this holy name to express anger. And so we're making God's name filthy when we take it in vain. That's to be put off. Profanity also includes words that trivialize serious realities, words like hell and damn and damnation. Those are real words about very real realities and things that we should speak of with trembling and with tears and with pleading. When we use that to express frustration when that hammer hits our thumb, we use words like that to express our anger over situations and other drivers or whatever else. We're taking a very real reality that should lead us to tears and pleading with people, and we trivialize it. We make it filthy by using it to express something that's really of such little importance. It applies to words like holiness as well. Holiness is a word that should lead us to worship God, that should stri- cause us to strive to be more like God in our own holiness. And we use that as adjectives to, to, to express surprise. We're taking a word that should lead us to reverence and we're making it filthy in there. The same goes for referencing the body and sex in vulgar ways. Taking body, names for body parts and names for sexuality and use that to express anger, to put down another person, to smear someone who we do not like. We're taking what God has given to us as good and we're making it filthy. All that is, is covered in this first word here in verse 4 of filthiness. And by God's grace, by God's strength, he's saying that that's not fitting in your life. Put all that off. That's not the only thing he tells us to put off in our speech. Notice the second word here in chapter 5, verse 4. It says, let there be no filthiness nor foolish talk. Now this is an interesting word here because this word appears nowhere else in the Bible. So that's one of those fun words where you get when the translator is trying to translate it. They, there's, not, there's not like really precedent elsewhere to look at. It. It's a word in the Greek that's morologia, which I'm probably butchering the pronunciation. But it's where we get the English word moron from. So you could literally translate this verse, put off all moron talk 
from your lives. And that would be a very faithful, very literal translation of this word here. Literally, it's a word that means stupid, foolish, or a moron. And so we're told here to put off all of our speech that is impure, that is immoral, but also all of our speech that is moronic or talking like a moron or a stupid person. What does that include? That includes two things. First of all, that word encompasses wasteful words. Words that accomplish absolutely nothing. Words that do no good. Words that are empty. Words that serve no purpose to accomplish anything in life. In other words, words that are a waste of time. Conversations that are a waste of time. Doesn't mean we can't joke and have fun, but conversations that ultimately do no good for anyone. We're told, and we'll get to this in a few weeks, Ephesians chapter 5, verse 16. We're told about how we're to use our time. We're to make the best use of our time because the days are evil. And we're told to put off wasteful words, words that are moronic here, because they waste time and the days are evil. We're to redeem the time, not waste the time. But foolish talk not only includes words that are wasteful, it also includes words that are unwise, giving unwise counsel to other people. In Ephesians chapter 4, verse 15, think about this back to the fall, we're, we're told to do to one another. We're to speak the truth in love so that people grow up in every way into him who is the head of Christ. That means if you remember back, this was a long time ago, this was back in October, The truth here is a reference to the gospel, that our calling, our primary responsibility as God's ambassadors, God's messengers, is to speak the gospel to one another. We're not commanded to speak all of our opinions to one another. We're commanded to keep the gospel, the God standard, at the forefront. Yet we saw back then it's so easy, friends, for us to hold up our opinions and be really timid about sharing the word of God when it should be the other way around. Foolish talk is when we demand of others to do what our preferences are, not what the word of God says. Is what Proverbs 15, verse 2, warns us about. The tongue of the wise commends knowledge. What knowledge does it commend? The knowledge of God. But the mouths of fools pour out folly. What is folly? Insisting on doing things a person's own ways that's not required by Scripture. So we're told to not only in chapter 5, verse 4, to put off filthiness. That's profanity. That's sexual references outside the context of marriage. We're told to put off foolish talk. That is acting like a moron. That's wasteful words, and that is unwise counsel pushing our opinions on others. Why particularly should we put off wasteful words or unwise words? Because, friends, our speech is a stewardship. God has given us our speech to build others up. And when we push our opinions as gospel truth, we're not serving them. We're holding up us as a standard, not as God, and that ultimately hurts them. And, friends, as well, when we just waste time with words, we're missing the stewardship God has given us to build one another up. And so God calls us to put off anything that's going to not build up others and keep them from seeing God's truth. But there's one more thing we're to put off in our speech back in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 4. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, the last one, nor crude joking. Now, what in the world does this word mean? It's a Greek word that was used to describe innuendo. This was really celebrated in Ephesus. The people who were really held up and exalted in Ephesus were the people who could take any conversation and make it sexual in nature. And we all know people who can take any innocent word, innocent conversation, and turn it to some crude comment all for the sake of a life. That is what Paul is addressing here, that type of crude joking that takes innocent concepts and for the sake of a laugh tries to make them into some sexual context or crude context. But the second aspect of crude joking that's in view here as well, and those are jokes that tear down people. For the sake of a laugh, putting someone down, making fun of someone in the aspect of joking. Why are we told to put that off? Because both of those types of speech hurts other people. Jokes that hurt others is very obvious. We're using someone for selfish gain. For the sake of us being built up, us having a laugh, we're willing to tear down someone else who's an image bearer of God. And God says, there's none of that. You're called to serve, not called to be selfish, so don't do that. 
but also sexual innuendo, that taking those innocent comments and making them into innuendo. We're told to put that off because that hurts others as well. Like we saw last week, God has given sexuality for a particular reason, and he's for the good of serving one's spouse in the covenant of marriage. And the enemy does all he can to push it outside of marriage. And so when we take do innuendo and jokes, it leads others to think on things in a way apart from the way God commands us to think about, which ultimately brings harm to the person. So in all those things, God says put it off. That means to put off profanity, to put off sexual references outside of speaking of it in a holy, reverent way, to put off all foolish talk, which includes wasted words and pushing our opinions on others. It's putting off crude joking, innuendos, and tearing others down. I want you to notice something in this verse. What is the standard for these things? Look back in chapter 5, verse 4. Let there be, what's the next word? How much? What's the next word? No, none. And no means no. It means none. Not any of it there at all. This is the idea of the previous verse, not even a hint. Yet, friends, think of us. How often in our entertainment choices and our conversations do we laugh at filthy language? Do we laugh at talk like morons? Do we laugh at wasteful words? Do we laugh at sexual jokes? Do we laugh at others being put down? And then over time, friends, the more we laugh at something, the more we become willing to copy something in our own life. And then we find ourselves beginning to use that same language, the same words, the same jokes, the same putting other people down, the same pushing foolish counsel on others. And God says, if you're my child, I don't see you like that. That's not who you are in Christ. I see you as holy in your speech, as Christ is holy in speech. Now act like Jesus in these things. But notice in how he tells us to do that. It's not just go try harder, go just make New Year's resolutions to get rid of this type of speech from your life. He calls us to pursue his grace to change us, but in a particular way. And I love thinking of this as what I call a path of grace. God gives strength. Friends, James 3 already shows we cannot change our own speech. We cannot change our tongue. But God calls us to run down a particular path. And if we run down a particular path, he will meet us and he will give us the strength we need to change. And what is the path we run down? Look back at chapter 5, verse 4. Whether there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place, but instead. So if we want to experience God's power taming our tongue that we cannot tame ourselves, that changes these patterns in us, here's the but instead. Here's the path we run down to find his power to change us. But instead, let there be thanksgiving. Now, friends, does that seem random to you? I would expect here, put on purity of of speech. Let there be encouraging words. Let there be gospel-centered conversations. I would expect a whole list of things I could put in here if I was writing this. That's not what he says. He says, don't have impure speech. Don't have crude sexual references. Be thankful. I'm going, wait, wait, Paul, what's going on? Why, Why is that the path of grace? Why is that the place where God meets us? Why was what we saw last week, very similarly, friends, at the root, I'm convinced of every filthy speech, at the root of all foolish talk, at the root of all crude joking, is selfishness. At the root of all this type of speech that is not fitting for followers of Christ, at the core of that is selfishness. It's me wanting to express myself regardless of what God says. It's me wanting to express myself and get built up for the sake of a laugh regardless of how it hurts others or lead people down the path of sin or put someone down or whatever. It's me elevating myself and all those things. Remember Luke chapter 6 we saw earlier, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. The reason we're told to put on thankfulness is because it shows what's in our heart on this. The type of speech that is forbidden here in verse 4 is all idolatry of self. It's a heart that loves self more than loves God. And the way we counter that, the way we find God's strength in this, is we put on intentional thankfulness. Again, why thankfulness? Because friends, thankfulness turns the focus off of self to God. Thankfulness turns the focus off of me and what I want, and it turns it to God and His grace and His 
provision. Friends, we cannot at the same time be thankful and selfish in the same breath. And if at the core of all these sins of speech is selfishness of me wanting to be noticed, me wanting to be built up, me wanting to build self up over others, me wanting people to laugh so I feel good about myself, if at the core of that is selfishness and the antidote to that is to turn my eyes off self to God and His grace and what He has done. Friends, when we are thankful to God, it focuses our mind on Him. It reminds us of His goodness, and it keeps His grace ever before us. It reminds us that our lives are not about us. But friends, even more than that, when we are thankful, it reminds us that we are well provided for children of God. Thankfulness is a way to express to God that I believe that you have well provided for me. And friends, I'm persuaded that at the root of so many sins in our life is a belief from the enemy that we are not well provided for by God. We think all the way back to Genesis, to the garden. What was ultimately the lie that Satan whispered to them through the snake, to Adam and Eve? He says, did God really say? He's basically causing them to question that they are really well provided for by God. And isn't that where most of our sin comes from? Whether it's sexual sin, it's the enemy saying, you're not well provided for, you need that. Whether it's crude joking, oh, you're really not accepted, you need that. And so on all these, so many of our sins in our life that we struggle with, so many of the temptations, at the root of it, is a belief from the enemy that I am not well provided for by God and I need something else. And so the antidote to all this sin and these struggles in our life is, ironically, thankfulness. Because it reminds us that we have everything we need from God, that God has given me everything I need for life and godliness. And so, friends, when I express thankfulness to God, it frees me from having to gain the approval of other people. Because I'm thankful to God for His grace. It reminds me what He has done and how He has accepted me and now I no longer need the approval of man. When I express thankfulness to God, it frees me from having to put other people down to build myself up because I know who I am in Christ and I am loved by God. When I express thankfulness to God for His grace, it frees me from having to push my opinions to others because I realize I don't have anything worth sharing apart from what God has given to me. Basically, thankfulness frees us from selfishness and that in turn changes our speech. Whereas God gives us grace to rid impurity from our speech through, of all things, thankfulness. That's what I told in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 18. It's an amazing command. Give thanks in how many circumstances? All circumstances. Again, you know this in the Greek, all means all. This is not a complex thing. But in every circumstance, we're to give thanks. For this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. What is God's will? A lot of people get hung up on this. What does God want me to do? God wants us to be thankful. What's well, a bad day? God still wants us to be thankful. I'm not sure I like what's happening in life. God calls us to be thankful because as we're thankful we find his grace and as we find his grace it'll change our hearts as our hearts get changed in that our speech will reflect it so friends next time we're tempted to throw out a profane word or some type of inappropriate reference the antidote is not i'm going to try harder i'm going to bite my tongue the antidote is i'm going to think of god's grace and be thankful the next time we're tempted to just waste conversations or to push our opinions on other people as gospel truth, the antidote is not, I'm just going to bite my tongue. The antidote is, I'm going to think of God's grace and be thankful. The next time we're tempted to try to get a laugh through innuendo or sexual jokes or putting someone down, the antidote is not like, I'm just going to be quiet. The antidote is, I'm going to think of God and his grace to me and I'm going to be thankful. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place, but instead... Instead, the replacement, let there be thanksgiving. But I want to take it one step further, friends. Not just in the moment of temptation do I find God's strength by replacing these simple words with thankfulness. We need to be proactive in this. We need to cultivate in our hearts the will of God 
thankfulness and ongoing thankfulness. There are things we can be thankful for in every circumstance and every situation. Even when life is tough, there are things we can find to be thankful for. And the more you and I, by God's grace, cultivate a heart of thankfulness for his goodness and his grace, the more we are prepared when the temptations come, whatever they are. So I want to give you a challenge this week, a homework assignment, if you will. I know school started back, so there's an extra homework for those of you in school. Would you take 10 minutes sometime this week? If you're married, sit down with your spouse. If you have kids, bring them into the room as well and talk to them. Maybe you do this with your roommates or your friends. But take about 10 minutes and think of as many things as you can be thankful for. I, think in ten, you, I don't think 10 minutes will be long, but think of as many things as you can find to be thankful for in about 10 minutes, and then turn that to prayer to God. God, thank you for shelter. Thank you for clothing. Thank you for food. And just begin to list your blessings. Like the old songs, was it back in the 70s, count your blessings, name them one by one? Let's practice that, friends. Let's cultivate in our hearts this week thankfulness for all that God has done. And my hope in that, in my heart and yours, is, is we cultivate a heart of thankfulness for his grace temptations were the lie of the enemy that we're not provided for will be so weakened and so broken we will see transformation in our thoughts our words in all parts of our life i want to pray for us and as the musicians come i want, before we even do that homework time i want you to take a few minutes where you're sitting just a minute and begin to start thanking god for things he's done would you just bow your heads and close your eyes would you take just a moment begin to think about what are things you can be thankful for it may be shelter, maybe food, maybe friends, maybe God's grace. I hope it's God's grace of knowing that you're a well-provided for child of God. It may be the love of God you've experienced in some tangible way. It may be an answer to prayer you found this week. Perhaps it's something as simple as you have warmth on a cold day and a coat on your back. Would you take just a minute where you're sitting and live out Ephesians 5, 4 before the Lord to let there be thanksgiving. Scripture is very clear. God has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Scripture is very clear in the book of James that every good and perfect gift has come from above. Friends, if we have clothes on our back, if we have food on the table, if we're able to get here to this building, if we have friends, if we have him, whatever we have, it is the grace gift of God. Because we already sung earlier today, we are not worthy. He is worthy. There's nothing we've done to merit any kindness from the Lord. Because all we bring to God is sin and rebellion. But in His grace, He has poured out not just salvation for us, He has given us so many good things. Would you take a minute now and practice Ephesians 5 4? Let there be thanksgiving. Father, even if we sat here for another hour in silence, we would not run out of things we could be thankful for. God, you have blessed us so abundantly. 
so richly out of the overflow of your character, your giving nature, your grace. God, you have poured so many spiritual blessings and physical blessings on our life that we are so undeserving of. God, I pray in my heart and the heart of these precious brothers and sisters, God, you would cultivate in our hearts a heart of thankfulness. God, a remembrance that we deserve nothing from you, and yet you've given us so very much. And God, I pray out of a heart that is full of thankfulness for all you've done, that sin's power would be broken and weakened in our lives. God, because I know that the more that we are thankful, the more that you will turn our hearts to see your goodness, our own unworthiness, and we will see how well provided for we are as children of God. And those lies of the enemy that we're not provided for and that we need something else out there will be weakened. So give us much grace this week to hold up that shield of faith, Ephesians 6, remembering who we are in Christ and all that you have done for us. And even the song that Ira's playing in the background right now, to give thanks with a grateful heart. Lord, let that be true of my life and each of these brothers and sisters this week. God, that we would be people who are known of being a thankful people because we realize how undeserving we are and how generous you have been spiritually and physically in our lives. And I pray this week, Lord, that in my life and the life of these brothers and sisters, even our speech patterns will be different. Not because we're striving, not because we're trying harder, but because we realize how provided for we are and how thankful we are to you. I pray that would overflow this week to where others will be pointed to you through that. Lord, I'm so thankful you've given us your word and you tackle all these hard issues in our lives because you love us too much to leave us complacent in mediocrity. You love us too much and you have something so much better for us. So you call us to these places where we die to self and see you and your power at work in us. Lord, I pray this week for all of us that God, we would see your power at work and we would return thanks to you for all that you have done. And we know as we do so, Lord, you will get great glory, Father, and yet we will find great joy. And we ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand as we sing our closing song this morning?